So we're going to talk about Kanye West. We're going to talk about sandwiches. We're going to talk about suffering and vaccines. Um, I tried to make sure that at least some of you were triggered by something that I had to say this morning. Um, Because, listen, it's not preaching if you don't make anybody mad, right? Especially Baptist preaching. Amen. Amen. But listen, we're, we're also going to talk about glory and beauty and majesty and hope and peace and comfort and joy. Listen, there is so much here contained in the scripture for us today in this passage. And I really had a hard time cutting this sermon down to size because it is so rich with meaning and significance. I really think that I probably could have gotten three really good sermons um, out of just this one passage. So just to know that even though we're going to be covering a lot, we're only skimming the surface here with this. So put on your big boy and big girl pants and let's go. Are you ready? Let me pray for us right quick. Father, would you give us a glimpse of the glory of Jesus just as Peter, James, and John did on that mountain so long ago? Would you be so kind, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now I'm going to do something that I never imagined I would ever do in a sermon. I'm going to quote Kanye West. As I'm sure many of you know, Kanye West has been in the news a lot lately. For those of you who are unaware, Kanye West is a, he's a billionaire rapper, right, who, who used to refer to himself as Jesus, and he wrote some similarly sacrilegious um, songs, um, including the particularly blasphemous song, I Am a God. Um, but Kanye has recently professed faith in Christ. Apparently, he's repented of the ungodly and blasphemous behavior that he engaged in in the past, and and he even has recorded and recently released, and and I've listened to it, it's incredibly Christ-centered and a sound gospel album titled Jesus is King. Um, He is bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, and so far, everything seems to be so good with that. Um, Well, I don't know. Time will tell. Um, But recently, James Corden interviewed him and and asked him what he would say to those who are skeptical um, of his conversion. Um, And Kanye replied, now listen, keep in mind, Kanye is not a philosopher, okay? He's a rapper. He's not a philosopher, but keep that in mind whenever I you know, uh, recount this conversation to you. Um, Corden asked him what he would say to those who were scheduled with conversion, and Kanye replied, he said, I say, when you go to sleep, would you agree that you are asleep when you are asleep? And James Corden said, well, sure. And Kanye said, and when you wake up, would you agree that you are awake when you are awake? Would you agree that those are two different states? Well, yeah. Corden says. And Kanye concludes, I'm awake now. Kanye West, believe it or not, is making a very profound statement. Even though it doesn't sound that profound, what he's saying is that he's seeing reality in the world as it really is now. He's not dreaming. He's not deceived by an illusion. He has seen the truth, and the truth has set him free. He now sees things the way that they truly are, that Jesus is king and not Jesus. So now in our text today, Peter, James, and John, they had a similar experience where they saw things as they truly were. So let's look at our text, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now stop right there. Notice the first three words here. After six days. Now listen, in the Gospel of Mark, that kind of precise language is never used. Mark always gets straight to the point. Throughout the entire book, he only ever says, this happened, then this happened, and then they went there, and then they went there. This instance, though, where he says, after six days, is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where he places an event that he records within a specific moment of time. So that signifies to us that something very important is about to happen, and we need to really dig in if we're going to understand this text. So all before this, right, all throughout the book of Mark leading up to this, there's this, this tension that Mark has been building. Jesus comes onto the scene, and his disciples follow him because they believe that he is the Messiah. But all along the way, and especially in chapter 8, which was the last couple of weeks that we've been looking at, Jesus has been making these strange statements about being delivered over to the elites, to being killed, uh, he's going to be rejected by everyone, he's going to die, etc. And the disciples are just confused about all of this. I mean, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's going to deliver us from the oppression of Rome, how can he do this if he is dead? They were confused, and in chapter 8, right before this passage, we see Peter finally speak out against this. He says, no, I'm not going to let it happen to you, and Jesus rebukes him. Remember, get behind me, Satan, that whole thing. So the overall theme of chapter 8, if you were to give it a theme, the overall theme of chapter 8 is the suffering of Jesus Christ. And those who would follow him, right? If those who would come after him must take up their cross and follow me. So the overall theme of chapter 8 is the suffering of Jesus. Now look back with me at the last verse of chapter 8. Look at the last verse of chapter 8. Forever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, do you notice how Mark separates that last verse from what Jesus said prior in that chapter 9, verse 1? And he said to them, he separates that one sentence from the previous dialogue that Jesus had about picking up your cross and following me and not being ashamed. Jesus teaches the crowd about what following him looks like. And then Mark takes that last sentence and he separates it from the rest. So he's drawing our attention to this one sentence. Look at what he says. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power and after six days. Now, this is huge for us to see, guys. Mark singles out that declaration that there are some who would see the kingdom of God come with power, and then he immediately follows that declaration with the most precise language that he's ever used in his gospel six days later. 
What Mark is doing is he is intentionally using literary devices that he has never used before in his gospel to make us hone in on this moment. He's connecting Jesus' statement that some would see the kingdom come with power with the event that happens six days later. That's what he's doing, all right? So let's read. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Now, do you see what Mark is doing here? He's connecting Jesus' statement that some would see the kingdom of God coming with power with Jesus' divine transfiguration on the mountain. What Peter, James, and John witnessed on that mountain was a revealing of true reality. The veil was peeled back, and they were able to see Christ for who he truly was, the radiant, beautiful, glorious Messiah. Now, in this scene here, Moses represents the law, which was the prototype in the Old Testament of what life in the kingdom would look like, okay? And Elijah represented the prophets, which foretold what the kingdom of God would be. And in their presence, God tells Peter, James, and John to listen to Jesus, not to listen to Moses and Elijah anymore, to listen to Jesus. No longer were they to listen to Moses and Elijah, meaning no longer were they supposed to submit themselves to the law and the prophets because Jesus himself was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's in him that the kingdom of God that all of this pointed to has come in fruition and it's in Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God is embodied in. Everything that the Old Testament predicted and was pointing to and and was foretelling had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus is the coming of the kingdom of God. And here in this moment on this mountain, the kingdom of God embodied in Jesus Christ is seen in power, in divine splendor and beauty. Pretty amazing what Mark is doing, what he's trying to show us here. But look quickly so that we can make this because that's not the fullness of it, okay? There's still more here. Quickly, so we can make this connection while it's still fresh in our minds, let's keep reading, okay? And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I'll tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So here the disciples are descending the mountain, and they're still not understanding the suffering of Jesus Christ. They're asking themselves these questions. What does it mean that he's going to rise from the dead? And Jesus again confirms that, that the Son of Man, whom they just saw in his unbridled splendor and glory, he was going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. You see, the theme of the story returns back to the suffering of Jesus. So 
look at the progression here. Mark begins in chapter 8 with the discussion of the suffering of Jesus and those who will follow him. Okay, And then that theme is interrupted intentionally with the transfiguration in which we see a glimpse of true reality. Christ in all of his glory. And then the theme returns back to the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. You see how that theme of glory is sandwiched in between the two themes of suffering? that Mark is doing here, this is a very, very frequent literary device used throughout the Gospel of Mark in which he begins a discussion with one theme, interrupts that narrative and introduces another theme, and then returns to the theme that he was previously discussing, right? Now, this is so prevalent throughout the book of Mark as scholars have determined for thousands of years that it was intentional by Mark. And as I was researching this, this theme that, he, that, that, that Mark uses, I read a white paper that was written by a team of scholars who coined this literary device used by Mark as, get this, a Markin sandwich. And I'm sure that's probably not the sandwich you were thinking that I was going to be talking about. He introduces a theme, and then he puts a slice of meaty narrative right in the middle of it, and then returns back to the previous theme. That's a Mark and Sandwich. And the main point that the authors of the paper made was this, and I believe they made it very convincingly, that the middle component of each one of these Mark and Sandwiches provides the theological meaning to the surrounding themes. All right, So listen, if you want me to send you the paper, I will. But right now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to ask you to trust me on this, okay? Besides, if you're really, really interested in reading about Mark and Sandwiches, I can hook you up, but I'll also hook you up with some counseling too, because that's just not normal. But here's the point that Mark is making, okay? By surrounding the glory of Christ in the transfiguration with the themes of suffering and the death of Christ, Mark is making the point that the glory of Jesus Christ is not diminished by his suffering, that his rightful place as Messiah and Savior of Israel is not derailed by his suffering and dying, that his pain and suffering does not rob him of his dignity and honor as king of the world. See, that's what Peter, James, and John were misunderstanding. If he's the Messiah, how can all of these things that he's saying be true of him? It can't be true. But Mark is proving the point that, yes, it is true. And it doesn't at all take away from the fact that he is king, that he is Lord, that he is Messiah. Elizabeth Elliot says this. She says, it's only in the cross that we can begin to harmonize the seeming contradiction between suffering and glory. And we will never understand suffering unless we understand the love of God. We're talking about two different levels on which things are to be understood. And again and again in the scriptures, we have what seem to be complete paradoxes because we're talking about two different kingdoms. We're talking about this visible world and an invisible kingdom through which the facts of this world are interpreted. Now that last line that she says, an invisible kingdom through which the facts of this world are interpreted, that's what we need to see here at the Transfiguration. That despite what the disciples had seen the entire three years of following Jesus, they were only seeing through the lens of this world, not through the lens of the invisible kingdom that Jesus was trying to show them. 
And that's what I want to help us do today is to try to look at the, at the life of Christ and then our lives through the lens of the invisible kingdom rather than through the lens of the world. What we see with our eyes, what we feel in our hearts, and what we understand and experience in our minds, that's not all that there is to life. There is something going on underneath all that. There is something going on underneath Jesus' ministry and his suffering that the disciples didn't understand, and I'm going to make the case that the same exact thing is true for us. So here we go. Now, the first thing that we need to understand is how Jesus' suffering is connected to his glory. How are these two connected? Jesus' life, as you know, I'm sure, was certainly one of pain and sorrow. There's a reason why we sing that song, Man of Sorrows. It comes from a prophecy concerning Jesus in Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And certainly he experienced much grief in his life. You know, it's, it's speculated, and I think it's, it's good speculation, that perhaps Jesus lost his father, his earthly father, Joseph, at a, at a young age. The last time that Joseph is mentioned in the Bible is when Jesus was 12. Remember, he went missing, and his parents, Mary and Joseph, they go looking for him. They find him in the temple, and Joseph is there. He's 12 years old. That's the very last time that Joseph is mentioned in the Bible. So later on in the narrative at the wedding at Cana, when Jesus turned the water into wine, remember that? Joseph was not there. Jesus was referred to as the son of Mary at that event, not the son of Joseph, which would not make sense in that culture unless Joseph was somehow out of the picture. And what do we know about Joseph? That whenever he found out that he was um, uh, engaged to Mary, who was pregnant with a child, he decided because he was a righteous man that he was going to put her away quietly, right? Because he was a righteous man. So the idea that Joseph maybe divorced Mary along the way, it just doesn't fit into the biblical narrative of what we know about Joseph. So the idea is that he must have died somewhere along the way after Jesus was 12. And Jesus, being the oldest son at that point, would have become the breadwinner for the family. He would have become the leader. He would have had to lead his family at such a young age. So there's the idea that he lost his father at a young age. He begins his ministry, and he is immediately hated by the religious elite. He's lied about, and he's gossiped about. He goes to Nazareth, and he's rejected by his brothers and his sisters and his family, his hometown friends that he grew up with. They tried to throw him off a cliff. He lost dear friends, Lazarus, one whom he wept over. When he knew what was about to come at the cross, he was in agony. He said in John, my soul is in anguish. And he pleaded with his friends, the disciples, to stay awake and pray with him, but they didn't. And then when the Roman guard came to arrest him, the disciples abandoned him. Then he was dragged through the streets like a criminal. He was given an unfair trial. He was exchanged for a murderer. He was beaten viciously to the point where Scripture says you couldn't even tell that he was even a human being. And there on the cross, hanging naked before the world, abandoned by his friends, abandoned by his family, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus Christ was 
utterly alone. So yes, Jesus experienced immense pain, immense suffering, immense trial and persecution. But that's what led to his glory. I know we quote this verse a lot, but there's a good reason. It's one of what scholars call the the high Christological passages in scripture because of how much majesty and glory is contained in it. This is Philippians 2, verses six through 11. It says, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's the suffering, okay? Now see the reward. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Christ's suffering brought him glory and the point of the transfiguration was to convince the disciples and us that Christ's suffering and his glory are not at odds with one another. They are mutually necessary for either to have any significance whatsoever. And we celebrate this, don't we? Jesus dying on the cross, the pain that he went through, and for good reason. The glory that he has received, that he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And the reason why we celebrate this is not just because we necessarily are set free from our sins, but because we greatly benefit from the glory of Jesus Christ. His glory is our gain. Check this out. Let me show you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. It says, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the same power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The kindness and the glory of Jesus Christ are on full display here in this verse. Christ has the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. This is part of his glory, and rightly so. He conquered sin, death, and the grave. And what other enemy can pose any kind of threat to him? What other power or authority can come close to his? He faced the crucible and the fury of hell, wickedness, and the wrath of God, yet he came out on the other side not only unscathed but radiant, as we have seen on the mountain, exalted as king and lord over all. Yet according to the apostle, he will not use his power to exert dominance over us. He will not exercise his right as lord to subject us to servitude. He doesn't rely upon his status and his power and position to exalt himself. He knows there is another who will take care of that. Look at John 8:54. Instead, he will use his power to make us like him dispensing amongst us the very glory that merits his position of honor and authority. He shares with us the glory that gives him power. He does not hoard it. 
2 Thessalonians 2.14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. As if salvation, freedom, as if his righteousness was not enough, he gives us his glory. How unlike us he is. We hoard our glory. We don't give it away. And we are so undeserving of what he's given us. And still he seeks to make us like him. You see, he assumed our form so that one day we could assume his. In fact, that was the plan from the beginning, Romans 8, 29. Those that God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the point of our sanctification, of our following Jesus, to be made more into the image of Jesus Christ. Yet, it is his sacrifice of his glory that even after our transformation into his likeness will cause us to consider him as even still greater than ourselves. We cannot miss this. Jesus, even though he makes us like him, does not make us equal with him. Because think about it. Isn't it by him giving us equal beauty that we would see him as more beautiful? Isn't it by him giving us equal dignity that we would see him as more dignified? Isn't it by bestowing on us equal value that we would see him as more valuable? You see, the shedding of his blood not only paid for but covered our sin and the breaking of his body not only absorbed but absolved the wrath of God for us he stepped out of heaven lived within the confines of a human body with human limitations suffered the most severe affliction loneliness hunger pain isolation hatred but and sorrow all from the hands of the ones he came to save. Yet isn't it by sharing in our condition, submitting himself to our abuse, yet still choosing to take upon himself everything that makes us unworthy, that causes us to see him as even more worthy? It is. You know, I've, I've read it many times, the the narrative, and I wonder, you know, as those soldiers dressed him in purple and they placed that crown of thorns upon his head and they spat on him and they mocked him, I wonder what kind of eyes Jesus looked at those soldiers with. He would later plead to God for them, for their forgiveness. They didn't know what they were doing the king of kings a king and they made him a spectacle for the world pity they didn't know that he didn't want anything from them only something for them he wanted to give them himself he wanted to give them his glory which is exactly what he has done he has transformed our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body we broke his body but he has transformed these wretched clay vessels into glorious sculptures of his grace. We betrayed him, and he calls us friend. 
We mocked him, but he honors us. We spat upon him, and he showers grace upon us. We pierced his heart, and he gives us new hearts. We killed him, and he gives us eternal life. We abhorred him, and he glorifies us. But the very act of giving away his glory heaps more and more glory upon him. The very thing he loves, he shares with us, and he asks for nothing in return for this gift, just that we receive it gladly with joyful reverence. Christ loses nothing in this exchange, but we all benefit greatly. We experience immeasurable gain. His glory is our gain. And if you think that's cool, which I do, Check this out. Paul makes another connection between the suffering and the glory of Jesus in Romans 8, 18 through 21. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is an amazing passage here because there's something amazing here. It's glory. It is a glory that is so magnificent. It makes all of the sufferings of these present times seem trivial when set side by side. None of the tornado damage from Memorial Day. None of the miscarriages. None of the terminal diseases. None of the 50 million murdered babies every year. None of the drug addictions. None of the house fires. None of the punches or the bullying or the name calling. None of the abuse. None of that. Even when combined all throughout the history of this earth will seem to matter to us when we are introduced to this glory. Every ache, every pain, every tear will be swallowed up by it. And any attempt to compare the two will make our sorrow here in this life seem like the most meager price to pay for such a reward. And the amazing thing is, is that I am not at all minimizing the suffering that is going on in the world. Things really are as horrible as they seem, and probably even more so than we realize. But just as horrible as things are now, According to Romans 8, the weight of glory that is awaiting us will be a million times heavier. Let me try to show you. Back again at Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is a profound passage. It tells us quite a few things. The first thing it tells us is this, that the creation was subject to futility. The fall of Adam and Eve in the garden didn't just introduce sin into the hearts of mankind, but it also affected all of creation. Sin taints every aspect of the universe. The most beautiful sunset that you have ever seen is actually a disfigured portrait of something that was once much more beautiful. Stars are not as bright as they should be. Oceans are not as blue as they once were. The whole creation exists in a diminished state of beauty. The second thing that shows us this is that this, this happened not willingly because of him who subjected it. 
Now, some have said that the him in this passage, the him who subjected it, the creation of utility, refers to Adam, who plunged all of creation into sin when he disobeyed God's command to abstain from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But I don't think that that interpretation is the strongest. It's actually God who subjected the creation to its current futility. Now, the strongest indicator that this interpretation is correct is that the scripture says that this subjection was done in hope. This was done in hope. Adam disobeyed God out of rebellion, not hope. Only God is capable of orchestrating the events of the fall as a means of looking to fulfill a hope of something greater. Only God can do that. Which leads us to the next point. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this is the most profound statement here. If you'll remember, each day of God's work of creation was approved by him as good, right? And man, he considered very good. The creation, as it was initially brought forth by God, was wholly pleasing to him. But when sin entered the picture, God, who according to Ephesians 1-4, had already orchestrated a plan to redeem mankind before he even laid the foundations of the earth, he then decides to bring creation in on this whole ordeal and also allow it to obtain the same freedom of the glory of the children of God. God, who created a world that was wholly pleasing to him, a world that was completely untouched by sin and futility, he looked ahead at what was to come and he considered it as something far better. We can't imagine what the pre-corrupt beauty of this world was like. We can only a know the illusory facade that it is now. But however amazing this sinless creation was, it isn't as amazing as the redeemed world that is awaiting us. We understand that the Bible refers to that enhanced creation as the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21.1. This is a place where God will dwell in the presence of man. With his own hand, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And having already overcome sin and death by the resurrection of his son, sin and death will not exist in this place. Nor will there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All of these things will have passed away. Now, can you imagine the sunsets in this place? Can you imagine the colors and the sounds and the smells and the tastes, unhindered by sin. Nothing will be corrupted by sin, but yet this is nothing at all like the sinless creation in Genesis 1. This is far greater than that. What kind of beauty will our eyes behold? Oceans will roar mightier than they ever have, and mountains will soar taller than ever before. Never before will we have tasted water so pure, nor food so satisfying. Our wildest dreams will not even be able to come close to even hint at the splendor that the skies will contain in that place. And yet we haven't even gotten close to what the glory that will be revealed to us is that Paul is talking about. Because no, there's still something greater in that city that is awaiting us, something beyond all comprehension. We read of this in Revelation. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. 
and its lamp is the lamb. (laughs) Its lamp is the lamb, Jesus. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in light unapproachable. And in that place we will dwell with him. Matthew 13.43 says that the inhabitants of that city, the righteous, the redeemed, those of us who are born again, who have repented of our sin and placed our faith in Jesus, those of us who live in that city, Matthew 13.43 says that our faces will shine like the sun. The stars in the sky will glow a million times brighter than time has ever known. But even in all of this, just like on that mountain 2,000 years ago, its lamp will be the lamb. Christ will shine brighter still. That's the glory of heaven. And Peter said, referring to to the glory of Jesus that he saw at the transfiguration. In 2 Peter 1.16, he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And not too long now, and that sentence won't be so mysterious to us, we'll be able to say the same thing. <laughs> we'll be able to bask in this glory for all of eternity, which for those of you who have had your eyes open to the glory and the beauty of Jesus is a thought that is just exhilarating, is it not? It's not too long now. Amen. But what does, what does all this mean for us now, though? Like right now. What can we take away from this? What's the practical application? What are we going to walk out of here with? Well, just as Christ's suffering brought him glory, the same thing is true for us, that our suffering results in our gain. Now, I understand that all of what we've just talked about, the glorification of our bodies, Christ shining brighter still in the new heavens and new earth, I understand that all of that is future Okay, but don't downplay that. There's a reason that I started with all of the future benefits first is because hope is powerful. It's hope that allows us to endure. It's hope that motivates us to keep going. This glorious king that we've gotten only a glimpse of, he'll be ours for eternity. Now we see him only in a mirror dimly. And, but then we will see him Face to face. This sermon and and just every sermon ever preached, none of them will ever come close to truly capturing the majesty and the beauty of Jesus. And it's that hope that he'll be infinitely more glorious, infinitely more kind, infinitely more accepting and loving and compassionate that we know. It's that hope that will carry us through the trials of this life. So do not downplay the future hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what will allow you to endure. But this does have present implications for us now too. You know, as um, I was sitting in the, um, the mezzanine at Dorothy Lane Market, writing this portion of the sermon. So I'd like to write my sermons now. My um, mind just kind of wandered to you all. I was just thinking of you. And I was just thinking of how best to apply this to you. I was wondering how in the world am I going to tie in the suffering of Jesus and his glory into 
something applicable to you, something hopeful, encouraging. Because the thing is, I've been here long enough to know of the pain and the sorrow that fills this room in a lot of your lives. I know that you need it. I know we. Need, I know I need it. I mean, just just looking around, and some of you, I know that some of you have very, very recently lost loved ones, and you're hurting. Some of you have children with terminal illnesses. You'll probably outlive, and that thought haunts you. Some of you have already outlived some of your children. And although I've not experienced that, I know that that pain is one that never goes away. I've spoken with some of you in my office who are racked by the guilt of your past sins and you wonder if you'll ever be free from the feelings of condemnation and shame. There are some of us who have walked through marital infidelity and divorce and family trauma that has brought mental and emotional pain into our families and lives that we just don't know if we'll ever overcome. There are miscarriages, infertility, job loss, cancer diagnoses, mental illness, suicidal ideations, depression, anxiety, insecurity, abandonment, loneliness, fear of the future, haunting thoughts of the past, sexual, mental, and emotional abuse. The list goes on and on. These kinds of sin and suffering fill the stories of the lives in this room. And I, I just, I want to just try to encourage you. I want to try and help you. And there are several biblical truths that I think will do that. And I want to remind you of them and I pray that they will help you. So here we go. The first one is this, that our suffering is not an indicator of God's absence in our life. It's not. I heard a brilliant insight one time from a pastor out of New York City. His name is John Tyson. He pointed out something peculiar about how Jesus began his public ministry. Now, if you remember this, we covered this like what seems like five years ago when we started the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized, right? And it's recorded in all the other Gospels as well. But at Jesus' baptism, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, it marked the beginning of his public ministry. And at his baptism, something interesting happened, something very similar to what we just read about that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. The, when Jesus was baptized, the clouds opened up, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and then God the Father spoke from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, the point that John Tyson makes about that particular event is this, that Jesus' ministry began with a blessing, that he operated out of the blessing of God and not for the blessing of God. I think that's pretty brilliant insight. And now for our purposes, do you remember what Jesus did immediately after he was baptized? He was sent by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to suffer and to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. God says, I am well pleased with you, now go and suffer. 
And as we've already covered, Jesus' entire ministry was one that was marked and filled with suffering and pain. But that certainly wasn't an indicator that God was displeased with him. It couldn't be. Otherwise, the blessing that God pronounced on him at his baptism and then again at his transfiguration would have been a lie, which we know that God cannot do. So you must get this. Your suffering is not an indication of God's absence from your life. It's not. Janet Erskine Stewart, she was a Catholic nun, she said this, Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. This was true of Jesus' life and ministry. The Spirit descended upon him. He had the presence of God. He also faced immense suffering, but he also experienced unmatched joy. No, your suffering is not an indicator of God's absence. In fact, the Apostle Paul argues that your suffering is actually an indicator that God is working in your life. And Paul tells us this much in Romans 5, verses 2 through 4. He says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Now, if you look closely enough at this, you'll see that what Paul describes to us here is quite an amazing process. At the very beginning, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is the beginning of the Christian's walk with the Lord. Upon recognition of our depravity, upon repentance of our sin and placing our faith in Jesus Christ for the atonement of our sins, what are we left to do but to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? That rejoicing is the first posture of worship that the new Christian takes and strives to maintain throughout the rest of his life. This is where we must begin in our walk with the Lord. But notice the rest of the process Paul lays out for us. Rejoicing in our newfound hope is not all that we rejoice in, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Notice that the product of suffering is endurance. The product of endurance is character, and the product of character is hope. Now you work that backwards, and you'll begin to see the importance of what Paul is describing. Do you want hope? Build character. Do you want character? Strive for endurance. Do you want endurance? You must experience suffering. What Paul describes for us in Romans 5 is a process of growth. We begin our Christian walk by rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. We begin our Christian life with blessing, right? Just like Jesus did. And then as we follow Christ, we experience suffering, which 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that if anybody desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. And Philippians 1 tells us that this suffering is a gift that has been granted to us by God. It will come. It will come. As we follow Christ, we experience suffering. Now, if we successfully endure that suffering, then character is produced, meaning that we become more like Christ. We actually grow, and all of this results in a greater hope, which brings us right back to the first step, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God to repeat this process all over again. So you see, you should not run from your suffering or think that your pain is an indicator of God's absence in your life. It's actually an indicator of his love for you. I once had to take my daughter Lila to the doctor to get some shots. 
I took her to the doctor against her will. And I held her down, even though she tried to fight. And I allowed a stranger to inflict pain upon my child. Lila screamed. And she looked at me with eyes that were so scared and so confused. Wondering why I was subjecting her to this, she begged for me to make it stop, but I didn't. I held her there until it was over. And I did this, though, because I knew that the pain that she was experiencing then was for her own good. I knew that the benefits of her receiving those vaccines would far outweigh the problems that she would face later she would forgo them. I did it because I loved her. There was something good right on the other side of that pain that I was aware of, but she wasn't. Now, Paul understood that whenever he said that he considered the sufferings of this present time not worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We can't see it, but there's something greater right on the other side of it. He said something very similar in verse 17, right before this. He says, we will be glorified with him, provided we suffer with him. This is directly from the Bible, Romans 8, 17. In other words, there is no glory without suffering, but there's also no suffering without glory. There is something greater than your pain that is waiting for you on the other side of it, and we don't understand all the specifics of how that works now we probably won't we will one day and for now we just trust and we believe that God is who he says that he is that he is a loving father who works to do good for his children so in closing I, I want to remind you or um, or introduce you if you've not seen this before of the comfort of Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. I sat in a mezzanine and I tried very hard to sympathize with you, church. I genuinely love you and I care about you, and I realize that there's no way that I can put myself in every single one of your shoes and truly sympathize with the depths of the pain that each one of you have experienced. But then I remember that there is someone who can. There is someone who identifies with everything that you currently or have ever experienced. There is a man who knows exactly what you're going through and knows exactly why you feel the way you do. His name is Jesus. And he's the king of all creation. He's the darling of heaven the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this Jesus has felt the fullness of your pain and your sin and your struggle. The scripture tells us that on the cross, Jesus didn't merely take on sin, he became sin. All of the complete depravity and brokenness of man, he didn't simply feel it, he became it. The Bible explains it this way in 1 Peter. He says, surely he bore our sins in his body on the tree. In his body. Have you ever hurt so bad that it felt like your bones were wasting away? 
if our Lord partook of all the fallenness of humanity and in his body he became everything that he was never meant to be, then why wouldn't he be able to understand what you're going through? Jesus and the Father are united in such an intimate and close way that we consider them both the exact same person. But when Jesus hung on the cross and bore the penalty for his sin, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a moment, the identity that Jesus had for eternity past as being one with the Father, that identity was taken away. He didn't feel at home in his body. He didn't feel secure in his identity. He didn't experience the harmony of rightly balanced, rightly ordered desires. He was broken. He was broken for you, and he was broken for me, for us. And the scripture says that this brokenness, this disconnect, this disharmony, though, it did not last forever, for it was through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that Jesus exhausted the full power of sin, removed it, and thereby he reconciled all things to himself. He brought order to the chaos. He brought unity and cohesion to the world. Things that were once out of order and misaligned are now properly balanced and made right. Jesus Christ has been exactly where you are but right now at this moment he's alive and well on the other side of it and he is inviting you to come to him he is inviting you to leave behind your dysfunction and your disorder and join him in his peace and restoration and listen if you're exhausted I know you may be don't give up do not give up keep going keep running he will give you the grace that you need to stay firm until the end saint augustine captures this idea for us perfectly speaking to god in a prayer he cries out oh the twisted roads that i walked but look you're here freeing us from our unhappy wandering setting us firmly on your track comforting us and saying run I'll carry you. I'll carry you clear to the end. And even at the end, I'll carry you. That's the glory and the grace of the Lord Jesus. That even at the end, he will carry you firm to the end. The solution for all of us, no matter what our hurts, our habits, our hangups, no matter the nature of our struggles, the one choice that you have that will lead to your greatest freedom, joy, and flourishing is the choice to leave behind your sin and cleave to Christ. There is no other alternative. I'm not going to give you any false promises, though. Repentance and faith and belief in Jesus will not immediately rid you of all of your problems because you still live in this world. This world will not offer you restoration, but Christ offers you wholeness. This world will not give you relief, but Christ offers you enduring rest for your soul, a burden that is easy and a yoke that is light. This world will not offer you ultimate fulfillment, but Christ offers you eternal significance. He offers you his glory. He will transform your body to be like his glorious body. Your face will shine like the sun. The darkness will not win. The shame will not overcome you. The pain will not consume you because it has already consumed him and he overcame it. If you unite yourself to him, then that victory becomes yours. The question is, will you accept him as king? If so, 
then you'll see that these things, even your pain, you'll see them as they truly are. The veil will be lifted and you will be able to understand that all of this are just small pieces of a grand story that will one day culminate in his greatest glory and your greatest joy.